You know, in most dramas or most shows, there's one or two that are the stars of the show or the drama. And then there's a supporting cast of people that contribute to the overall drama. And when we read the Christmas story, we realize that the star of the show is Jesus Christ. We will talk significantly about him over the course of this series of messages. But today we're going to begin focusing on some of the supporting cast, some of those that were around the story of Jesus that were a part of what God was doing in the world in the first century. And we begin today with the stories of Zacharias and Elizabeth. You may have read these passages, these chapters repeatedly over the years, and they never get old, do they? They're always fresh every time you come to them and you realize that you're reading the greatest story that's ever been told. But today we let ourselves see through the eyes of Zacharias and Elizabeth what it was like as they were preparing for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. And I want you to follow along with me, if you will, beginning in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. When you read these words, you're reading the words of the gospel writer Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. And Luke says in the opening verses of this gospel that he's intending to set out an orderly account of the story of the life of Jesus. When he comes to the book of Acts, he will continue the story of the life of Jesus, but he'll do so through the expansion of the gospel and the growth of the church uh, in the book of Acts. But here, he's taking the details of the life of Jesus, and he's putting them together in an orderly fashion because he wants those who are reading them to be convinced about Christ. He wants them to know the certainty of Christ. And he begins before anybody else begins, any of the other gospel writers, except, of course, for John, who goes all the way back to the beginning of time, because in the beginning was the word. But as far as personalities go that are the supporting cast that we're talking about, Luke goes back beyond any other of the gospel writers to tell us about this man named John the Baptist and how he came to be through Zacharias and Elizabeth. You notice some things in the verses that we've read today that Luke, who would have been fastidious about details, as every medical doctor is fastidious about details, gives to us a politician. He gives to us the name of a political figure named Herod. And consequently, we have some chronology. <clears throat> we have the ability to date the approximate period that we're talking about. He tells us that this man, Zacharias, was a priest. He was one of those who comes from the priestly line, and he says to us that he was of the division of Abijah. At this point in history, there were about 18,000 or so priests. They could not all serve at the temple at the same time. And so they were divided into 24 courses, 24 teams, if you will. And they would serve the three major festival days, all 18,000 of them, the three major festival days, and then two weeks a year, 
They would serve according to their division at the, at the, at the temple where, where they, were, they were offering the sacrifices uh, to God. And so he's of this particular division uh, of Abijah. If you go back to 1 Chronicles 24 where David set this whole system up, you learn that that's the eighth division. In other words, he's not here on one of the three major festival days. He's here on one of the other two weeks that he comes to Jerusalem to serve at the temple. And it says that his wife as well was a descendant of Aaron. She too was from the priestly line, though of course she was not a priest. It's significant to note that the name Zacharias means God remembers. And the name Elizabeth means his oath. And when you put those two names together, it tells us that God remembers his oath. That This is a, an indication to us that what God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there was going to come a deliverer, there was going to come a Messiah, that the oath that God made that came through Abraham and through David, that God is keeping his word and God is delivering him into this world and he's going to do so, of course, through Mary and Joseph. But before he tells us about Mary and Joseph, he tells us about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And they are reminders that God remembers his oath. It says about them that they were righteous before God. This was a couple that loved God, that served God with all of their hearts. And when it says they were walking in the commandments, it means they were living according to what God taught. They were living according to the truth that's found in the Word of God. It says even that they were blameless. That doesn't mean sinless, but it means that they sought with sincerity to follow the Lord with all of their hearts and all of their being. And if they failed in some way, they sought to make it right and to get back moving in the right direction. They were blameless. They were sincere. They were genuine but they had a major problem, and that was that they were childless. They longed for a child. They prayed for a child, and yet Elizabeth was barren, and it was even worse than that. Not only was she barren, but now they were advanced in years. Does that mean that she's past menopause? Does that mean she's past the ability to give birth? I don't know. But I know that they were at an age where they weren't expecting to be able to become pregnant. That wasn't going to be, in their minds, the possibility of this even taking place. And for you and for me, it's difficult to fully comprehend what that would have been like. Some of you ladies can get close to understanding what that would have been like. But for the Hebrew women, that would have been a terrible, terrible tragedy. As a matter of fact, when you think about that, you can think about some other biblical characters who give us some insight into how Hebrew women felt. For instance, the woman Leah, who was married to Jacob, couldn't have a baby. Finally, God opened her womb, and she was able to give birth to Reuben. But do you remember what she said about her childless state in Genesis chapter 29, verse 32? She said, it is an affliction. Or think, if you will, about Hannah and Elkanah and Think about their inability to conceive a child and what was going on for Hannah. The other women were ruthlessly mocking her, ruthlessly mocking her. Every woman wanted a child to nurture. Every woman hoped to be the vessel through whom the Messiah would come. 
Every woman wanted children because there were property rights and there were family responsibilities that had to be handed down according to the Mosaic law to keep the property within the family, to keep the family belongings to the family. Every woman wanted a child because you understand there was no social security system and there were no retirement. Uh, there were no retirement homes. They had kids. And when you got old and you needed to be cared for, you were cared for by your family. Your children were, in essence, a safety net in old age. Every woman wanted to have children for many, many reasons. And when you think about Elizabeth, it's even worse than that. Elizabeth, it says about her that she was barren. Elizabeth would have felt that she herself was responsible. It was her fault. There's some punishment that's being exercised against her that's keeping her from being able to have a child. And ladies, stop and think for a moment what she might have felt like. You probably can come closer than anybody to understanding what uh, would have been the feelings that Elizabeth was battling there were the prying questions that people had to ask her. There were the insensitive remarks that she would often hear. There were the sudden pangs of desire for someone else's baby. Oh, I wish that could be my baby. There was the nagging doubts about the goodness of God that might have been going on through her mind. And then there was the suggestion, as I've already mentioned, the suggestion that somehow this is all her fault. You are barren because God is punishing you in some way. And can you imagine the weight of all of this that was resting on her? R. Kent Hughes is an author, and he writes about this and says, in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by childless women in ancient Hebrew culture because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. That brings me to make the very first point of this message. If you're following along on the app or online or you're making notes in a book, we want to talk first of all about the complications of brokenness. Why is it that there is infertility and why is it that there are so many tragedies and trials and tribulations in life? Why do we have to have tears that bring us to the place of our hearts literally breaking in two? Why do we have to experience all of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that we have to deal with in this life? Why is that true? And the answer is simply because we live in a broken world. When I say a broken world, maybe a more biblical term is a sinful world, a world that has been cursed by sin. And the result of that is all of the imperfections that we see that are in us and that are around us. What would make somebody take a gun and shoot students in a high school? Obviously, that's evil. It may even be demonic. But why is there such evil in the world in which we live? And the answer can only be that this is a broken world, a world that's been broken by sin. For some of you, it's been the brokenness of a child that you could not have, or maybe a child that you did have that has walked away from God and walked away from the things of God and is involved in things that break your heart because you know they don't have a good end. 
For others of you, it may be a divorce that you never wanted. You never got married expecting to divorce, but your marriage failed, and you find yourself wondering, what's going to happen to my life? Can I ever put the pieces back together? Or maybe it's the death of a loved one, uh, somebody that it was so dear to your heart, somebody even in your own family. Uh, Twelve years ago today, I was at my house. It was a Saturday, uh, December the 5th. 2009, and the phone rang, and on the other end of the phone was my sister, and she was telling me that my dad had just graduated to heaven, and that he had just passed away at the house. And the pain that you feel, and do you realize that at holiday seasons and birthdays and anniversaries and special family celebrations, those moments are more difficult maybe than at any other moment in life? Because you miss that one, because that one isn't present, because that seat is empty, because the one you love so dearly can't be there. Maybe that's the brokenness that you feel, or maybe it's a job that has reversals or isn't paying you what they should be paying you, or somebody that owes you something or cheated you out of something. There's all of this brokenness that goes on everywhere, and the Christian is the only one who understands the reason. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, Adam and Eve were placed, and God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other tree is available to you. Eat from all of them, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there in the Garden of Eden, Eve was tempted, and Adam willingly, knowingly, partook of that forbidden fruit, and they were plunged under the penalty of sin. They were plunged under the curse of sin. And now every person that comes into the world, every one of us has that same curse upon us, that has that same sin nature that we inherit from one generation to the next generation, from one father to the next father, from from one family to the next family. We understand what's going on. This isn't the final story that God's going to tell. As a matter of fact, people ask me sometimes, why hasn't God done something about it? He has. He has. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus now takes the sting out of these things for us. Not that they don't hurt, not that they don't cause tears, not that there's not trouble in our hearts, but he takes the sting out of them because he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then he promises us there's going to be a day when I'm going to set everything right. And I'm going to rule and I'm going to reign. And it'll be what I intended the earth to be before the sin was found entrance through Adam and Eve. It's going to be what I intended it to be. But the reality is right now, there are the complications of brokenness. As we begin this Christmas season and we begin thinking about the birth of Christ, maybe for you it doesn't bring the joy that it used to bring. Maybe putting up the decorations isn't what it used to be. Maybe the smiles and the laughter isn't as great as it once was. And today you're feeling the complications of the brokenness of living in this world. This past week I lost a friend in the ministry who suddenly was found in his own home, deceased from a heart attack, and now at home in heaven. And 
the brokenness that we feel, the hurt and the pain and the tribulation and the trials is a reality of the life. And it doesn't mean because you're godly that you're excused from those things. I hope you noticed it said here that Elizabeth and Zacharias were godly, were a godly couple. They were obeying the Lord. They were living in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were righteous, it says, before God. They were righteous before God. Here are two people that you would think if they were going to have nothing but the blessings of God. This throws out prosperity theology. Here in this moment, these are two righteous, godly people, and yet they are troubled, especially Elizabeth, troubled that she can't have a child the complications of brokenness, by the way, this particular brokenness that Elizabeth is dealing with, she has no idea what's going on behind the scenes, and neither do you. She has no idea that God has a plan for that empty womb. She has no idea or understanding of what God is doing that she can't quite see just yet. But here she is, this woman who feels this brokenness. She even feels it's her fault that she can't give birth to a child. God must be punishing me for something. Sometimes we're guilty of bargaining with God. God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. But God's not in the bargaining business. And the reality is all of us have trials and all of us have tribulations, and all of us have troubles, and all of us have tears, and all of us have the difficulties of life, and we have the reversals of life. All of us have to deal with death, and all of us have to deal with these things that are hard to explain. All of us have to deal with it because we live in a world that's been cursed by sin, and that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to come. The complications of brokenness. I can't read all of the verses that begin in verse 8 to 25, so let me tell you briefly the story. You see the brokenness of this couple. You can feel some of the pain that they feel. The desire that they had that was not fulfilled, and it wasn't the result of any punishment. These were righteous, godly people who were living in the way that would please the Lord in their lives. It's just the reality of living in a broken world, a world that's been broken by sin. But the story continues. In verse 8 to verse 25, we learn that there was that day when Zacharias was given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When the priests were serving, there were still too many to do everything that needed to be done, and one of them was to burned the incense on the altar of incense. It was done at the morning offering. It was done at the evening offering. And there would be a priest who would take coals from the altar. He'd go into the holy place. And on the left-hand side was the menorah. On the right-hand side was the table of showbread. And before that great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was found, where God would descend to meet with his people, there was another altar. It was the altar of incense. 
And the priest would take the hot coals from off the altar outside that holy place, bring them inside along with the incense, and he would put the coals on on that altar, and then he would pour the incense onto those coals, and it would make the smoke and this smell begin to fill the room, and this wafting of the smell drifting up to heaven that symbolized the prayers of the people outside when this was going on two times a day. The people were all praying They were all praying, and inside, the priest who was offering this sacrifice would prostrate himself on the floor before that altar, and he would be praying. Zechariah had this privilege. It was a -a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. It was chosen by lot. That would mean that it would be like to us choosing somebody by the length of the straw that you chose, the short one got it or the long one got it. Or like reaching into a bag that's full of little pieces of paper that have a number on it. And you pick out one piece of paper and the number. And once you had been chosen one time for this task, you were never allowed to participate in it again. But what you see behind all of this is the providence of God. God has brought him to this place at just this moment. And God has seen to it that his number is the number that's been chosen, that he will be the one that will be serving on this particular day. And he gets, the, he gets the coals and he gets the incense and he goes into that holy place and he puts the fire on that altar and he pours the incense on it and he prostrates himself and he begins to pray to God. We're not told what he prayed, but we're certain that he was praying for Israel, his people. And you can't help but maybe if... Elizabeth knew that this was his opportunity, that maybe she didn't whisper in his ear and say, hey, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance here, Zacharias. Don't miss it. While you're in there praying and the people are outside praying, make sure that you say something to God about us having a baby, maybe just one more time. I know it's late, but maybe one more time. And there's Zacharias stretched out before God praying, and it says... At the end of verse 11, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, let me ask you a question. Who would have known that the angel was on the right-hand side? Not above, not to the left-hand side, not behind him. Who would have known? Only Zacharias would have known that detail, right? And so Luke, when he says that he's putting in order, that he's done his research, that he's made sure to check out the facts and the details, he's in fact done so. He's apparently even talked to Zacharias. Certainly the Holy Spirit is inspiring him as he writes. But he's talked to Zacharias, and Zacharias says on the right side, what would you do if an angel, especially the angel Gabriel, were to to appear before you today? You would do exactly what Zacharias did. You would be struck with fear. Notice verse 13. Gabriel tells him six things. But the angel said to him, number one, do not be afraid. Oh, yeah, right. I I get it. Number two, for your prayer is heard. Was it the prayer he was praying at that moment, or had it been the prayers that he had been praying for moments, many times over the course of the years with his wife, Elizabeth? Number three, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear bear you a son. That certainly seems to indicate that he was praying for the son on this once-in-a-lifetime occasion. Number four, you shall call his name John. 
That'll be unusual. You'll see in a moment. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice. Number six, many will rejoice at his birth. He tells him six things. This angel, the angel Gabriel. And then he gives him five more things about John. Verse 15, number one, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Number two, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Number three, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we'll get to it in this series or not. But do you realize that every member of the family of Zacharias and Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit of God? Here he says John the Baptist is going to be filled with the Spirit of God. A little later it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit of God and she began to bless the Lord. And then later it says Zacharias was filled with the Spirit of God and he begins quoting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. They were all filled with the Spirit of God and he will turn many, that's number four, of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Number five, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he'll go on to say he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you know enough about the Old Testament to know that God predicts that before the second coming of Jesus Christ that Elijah will come? And here is not Elijah coming, but one who is coming in the spirit of Elijah. Why? Because as Elijah will come to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ, what we have here is uh, the, the spirit of God telling him that uh, their son is going to go before the Lord to prepare his way in his first coming, his first coming in Bethlehem. Can you imagine hearing those words? What would have been your response? What would have been your response in those moments? Well, let me show you what Zacharias' response was. Verse 18, and Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Look down to verse 20. In the middle of the verse, he says, because you did not believe my words. If you're keeping notes on the app or online, or if you're keeping notes in your, in your uh, notebook, secondly, we want to talk about the consequences of faithlessness. The consequences of faithlessness. Now, here, here's a man that knows God, right? Here's a man who's walked with God. Here is a man that it's said about him that he's righteous. Here is a man that's living according to the commandments and the ordinances of, of the Lord, and yet even if he's praying here, when he's praying here in the holy place before this altar of incense, and he possibly prays for his son, something that maybe his wife had whispered in his ear, maybe one more time, ask God to give us a son. And the angel appears. He's stricken with fear. He's given instructions about that son. And then what does he say? Mm, you're going to have to give me something better than you i got to have a sign. You're going to have to give me some kind of a sign. He says, you didn't. The angel says, Gabriel says, you didn't believe my words. The consequences of faithlessness, faithlessness. What happens to him? Because he didn't believe the words of the angel that was sent by God, he was stricken with the inability to speak. 
Now, you think about this for a moment. We're going to talk about this a little bit further, but just think about this for a moment. When he finally emerges from the holy place and he comes outside of the temple, the people that have all been watching, they've all started worrying that they were watching in prayer. They were praying, but Zacharias has been in there a whole lot longer than he was supposed to have been in there. He's been in there a lot longer than any other of the previous priests have been in there. They, they don't know what's going on. They might be thinking to themselves, what are we going to do to get him out of there? If he's dead, what are we going to do to pull him out of there? How, how are we going to get him out of there? They're worried about him. It says they've stopped praying. They've started watching. They're looking to see what's going to happen. And suddenly, Zacharias, after a long time, emerges. And he's got to be like a mime, you know. The one announcement that he desperately wanted to be able to give every parent. Have you seen the birth announcements? I mean, when our kids came, we just sort of said, okay. We didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. We were just glad we got one or the other. Now they know exactly what the sex is. They've already got the name planned out. They got the room completely designed. And the grandparents, I know I've done this, the grandparents have already lined up the closet with all the clothes that are necessary. And then they get online and they do these elaborate announcements about their coming child. Can you imagine if one of those parents who couldn't have had a child suddenly found themselves with a child, but they couldn't tell anybody about it? And all of that's because he didn't believe God. The consequences of faithlessness. Zacharias focused more on his human problem than on the divine promise. He saw his age and the age of his wife. He knew the multitude of prayers that had gone before, the multitude of opportunities that he thought might be the time for a child to be born. But none was ever born. No child was ever conceived. And now all he could see was the human problem, and he missed the, design, the, the divine promise. Let's remember something, because this is comforting to us. It's comforting to me. As a pastor, after 39 years, even though I have been in three churches in my life, the one I grew up in, the United Methodist, the Owsley United Methodist Church, where I was saved and where I served as a youth pastor, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, and Lewis Memorial Baptist Church. That's it. You say you needed a little wider you know, experience. I understand. I understand. But let's remember something about this. This man is not an atheist. This man is a priest. He wasn't even a beginning priest. He was one who had walked with the Lord for a long, long time. He was experienced in the ways of the Lord. When he was working in the temple those two weeks and on major religious holidays, he was instructing the people from the Word of God. And when he wasn't working at the temple, do you know what he's doing when he's out amongst the people where he lives? He's teaching the people to believe God. <laughs> Maybe you're one of those who's come to that moment in life and you wonder, do I still even have faith? Maybe my faith is gone. Well, you can understand Zacharias. And you can see a man that God complimented for the way that he lived his life. He and his wife lived their lives. 
But here was a man knowing God, a man who taught others to know God and to believe in God. And yet when it came time for him to hear the message that a child was going to be born to he and his wife, he didn't believe God. Do you find that rather ironic? And think about how God would have felt about that. I mean, why else would God have dispatched an angel except that Zacharias was close to God? You know, when a stranger doubts us, we usually pass it off and say, well, they just don't know us. But when there's a close friend or even a spouse that doubts us, it hurts more deeply than we can possibly imagine. If there was a man who grieved the Spirit of God, it was Zacharias on this day. He grieved God's heart. He was close to God. He knew God. He taught others how to know God and how to believe God. And yet in this moment, Maybe because of the age of the two of them. Maybe because he had just stopped praying until that moment when he possibly prayed in that room one more time because his wife had urged him to do so. He just stopped believing that this was ever going to take place. Do you know that's a dangerous place to be in life? Did you know that faithlessness is a dangerous place to live your life? We should believe God no matter what. When you read the book of Hebrews and you come to chapter 11, you're reading what's called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame chapter. And what does it say? One person after another person after another person, they believed God. They believed God. They believed God. They believed God. Some of them didn't receive the fulfillment of the promise, but they didn't stop believing God, it says. They kept on believing God by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Maybe you're in a circumstance where you're hurting like, Zach, like uh, Elizabeth was hurting and Zacharias were hurting. Maybe life hasn't been kind to you. Maybe life has been difficult for you. And maybe life has had reversals for you. This is not the time to walk away in faithlessness. This is the time to draw closer to God. And this is the time to keep saying, I'll trust you, God, even if I don't understand what all's going on. I'll trust you, God. I'll keep believing you. Believing God is where many people struggle, isn't it? They believe that the Bible was written by men, but they doubt it was written by God. They believe Jesus was a man, but they doubt that he was also God. They believe Jesus died, but they doubt that he rose again. In other words, it takes faith to accept God's word and to receive God's son and to enter God's salvation. It takes faith in an all-powerful God and what God always wants from us. What this story reminds us that God always wants from us is faith. It's faith. Believe him. Believe him. He might do something altogether different than you expected or imagined, but you don't stop trusting the Lord. Amen. Whatever God says, you just simply believe it. Amen? Amen? He said that Jesus died and rose again, so you believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. He said that he would forgive any that trusted in Jesus for eternal life. And so you're a sinner and you believe in Jesus. You know you're a sinner and you believe in Jesus. Then you should know that your sins are forgiven. He said that he'd never leave you or forsake you. So whenever troubles or whatever troubles are facing you, you believe that God will help you to the very end. He said that Jesus was coming again to judge the world. And if that's what God said, 
then you better start looking and watching for Jesus to come. Amen? Amen. Because Jesus is going to come. The consequences of faithlessness. This Christmas season, let's believe God. Maybe you have experienced the complications of brokenness and you're going through something in your life and you're wondering, where is God? Why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he deliver me? That's not the time to quit believing God. Number three, and finally, we're going to talk a few minutes about the celebration of submissiveness. I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but if you'll turn over in chapter one of Luke, you'll notice verse 67, finally, The day comes. Nine months of pregnancy have passed. Aren't those the longest nine months, men? (laughs) I knew that would get a rise. Aren't those the longest nine months, ladies? And don't you reach a place when you think to yourself, please, Lord, let this child come. Please, Lord, let this child come, right? Finally, nine months have passed, and it's time for the baby to be born, and he is born. Can you imagine everybody gathered around? This is a communal society. Can you imagine everybody gathered around, all the excitement about the birth to a couple that for years, years have been unable to have a child, have had to deal with the shame of that, the fear of what all that meant. Suddenly and finally, there's a child that's born. And it's time to name him. In Hebrew culture, you named a child according to your family. You didn't choose a name outside of your family. You chose a name inside of your family. And everybody said, aren't you going to name him Zacharias? Zacharias the second or Zacharias the third or Zacharias the fourth. Aren't you going to name him Zacharias? And Elizabeth said, no, 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 nothing doing. We're going to name him something altogether different. We're going to name him John. John? There's nobody in your family that has that name. Nobody in your family goes by that name. What are you choosing the name John? And they give to Zacharias probably a wax kind of a form where he could write in it. And he writes on it, yes, his name will be John, J-O-H-N. And suddenly what happens? Suddenly his tongue is loosed. Suddenly the father who for nine months hadn't been able to say a word or celebrate the coming of his child, suddenly all, all, of a, all of, in a matter of a few moments, his tongue is loosed and now he's praising God. As a matter of fact, for all of you memorizing scripture, you ought to just go through these four songs that are found in the opening chapters of Luke 1 and 2 and find how many Old Testament references are quoted. They might not have had their own copy of the word of God to be able to carry around with them like we carry around with them. But when it came time, they were able to quote the word of God. They learned it. They memorized it. They took it in and repeatedly over and over. And what was John excited about? He was excited about holding his own son in his arms. But even more so, he was excited that the one who was coming behind his son was the Savior of the world. Notice at verse 69. Well, look at verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's talking about Jesus. That's the horn. That's the symbol of power and strength. Notice verse 76. 
and you, child, will be called the prophet. He's not going to be a priest. The prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Whose ways? Jesus' ways. Look at the end of verse 78. With which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The celebration of submissiveness. I think it's Charles Stanley who says, as a matter of fact, I know it's Charles Stanley who says, obey God and leave all of the rest to him, all of the consequences to him. And here is a man who was given a moment in time. He could have said, no, we're going to call him Zacharias. But what did he do? He said, nothing doing. I was told by the angel his name would be John, and I don't know what will happen to me if I don't name him John. And in that moment, he obeyed God, and suddenly that submissiveness turned into celebration. You understand, when you submit yourself to God and say, Lord, I will do what you tell me to do. I will follow you where you tell me to go. When you do that, the result is you find reason to celebrate even when your circumstances are the evidence of the brokenness in the world in which we live. I want to give you two applications. Number one, if you're suffering today, keep on serving. If you're suffering, keep on serving. Part of the Christian perspective on our trials of life is that even in suffering, there is a way for us to glorify God. The question that we need to be asking when we're suffering is not, what have I done to deserve this? The question ought to be, how can I glorify God through this? And I want to tell you, Elizabeth just kept going back and serving God every day. Zacharias kept serving God. Yes, in a moment of time when he should have believed God, he disbelieved God, and he was given a sign, the sign of not being able to talk about the baby that was going to be born to he and his wife. But the reality is this was a couple that even when they could have given up and quit, they didn't give up and they didn't quit. What some people considered a tragedy for her was an opportunity to keep on serving God. And if you're suffering, keep on serving. It's not the time to quit. It's not the time to say, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let somebody else take care of. I'm going to do something altogether different. It's not the time to walk away from God. It's the time to walk nearer to your God. Number two, in your waiting, keep on believing. In your waiting, keep on believing. You know, something that's noteworthy that we didn't get a chance to read, I hope you'll read the rest of the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, we didn't get to read it out loud here. You know that Elizabeth was a woman of faith that while her husband didn't believe what the angel said, when her husband was able to communicate what was going to occur in their lives, she did believe God. By the way, ladies, sometimes your husband needs you to believe God when he doesn't. And men, sometimes your wife needs you to believe God when she doesn't. And she believed God. 
As a matter of fact, Elizabeth was the first recorded example of a New Testament woman of faith. She is the first recorded example of a New Testament woman of faith. She's the first person to be filled with the Spirit of God in the New Testament. She's the first person to sing a song in the New Testament. She's the first, are you with me? I'm almost through. She's the first Titus II woman. You know the older women teaching the younger women? Because Mary will ultimately come to her, and what does the older woman do? She comforts and encourages and helps Mary as the Scripture encourages older women to do for younger women. And in her waiting, she kept on believing. I don't know what you face today, but I want to remind you that without faith, Hebrews 11 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Just keep trusting the Lord while you're waiting.